Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and I found myself on an island right now, but I have content for you, namely an interview with Helen Pluckrose, who is the head editor of Aereo magazine. She's also come into somewhat of international infamy with her fellow writers James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian by those three publishing a number of hoax articles. I know there's a different word than hoax that I'm supposed to use, but they wrote some articles for various academic journals showing the lax standards in these journals. In this particular conversation, we talk about the rise of postmodernism, its interrelationship with Marxism and activism, and various ways that we can, you know, one, undermine this problematic way of thinking, and we, we get into why it's a problematic way of thinking, and how we can show people an other way of thinking. Hey, some bird wants to talk to us now. Um, a return to enlightenment values or modern values or post postmodern values. So that all being said, I'm going to get down to the beach right now and here's Helen. Ah, so we finally made it. Are you better now? Finally. It's been so, uh, so long in uh, trying to get this to happen. But yeah, we're here. I'm doing mm. good. I'm healing well. Good. How are, how are you doing? Yeah, all is well. Well, you know, I, I was I couldn't speak to you for a while because I just lost my dad. But yeah, we're um, we're we're getting on now. I think my brain works again now. Hmm. <laughs> Too many projects. Oh yeah, oh, some of which I'm sure you can't speak of. But I, I guess one of the things you do is you run Aereo. You're like the head mm. honcho there, and you got a project Ooh. with James and Peter. Yeah. Yeah, sort of ongoing work with them and Mike. So there's that, and there's also my book, which I, I had to take three months out of writing, but I've, I've started that again. I'm looking at um, postmodernism, the scholarship activism, which evolved from them um, over the 80s and 90s and how it's evolved since feminist epistemology, critical race epistemology, queer theory, etc. Fat activism, even. And um, yeah, uh, looking at, at how this works sort of epistemologically and what the problem is with it compared to the sort of enlightenment, um, liberalism and um, reason and evidence focus. Is there a way of returning to pre-postmodernism or are there certain things that have happened because of postmodernism or certain insights that it's brought to bear into the conversation that aren't necessarily going to be reversed? And so we have to kind of redesign the Enlightenment project. Well, I mean, the Enlightenment project is one that's constantly being redesigned anyway. It was vulnerable to attacks from things like postmodernism. But we, we've got rationalism and, and anti-rationalism. We've got evidence-based epistemology and um, faith-based or subjective epistemologies. And they're, they're constantly pushing at each other. And we just have to make sure that the evidence-based ones win. Because um, it just doesn't work too well otherwise. <laughs> Do you think, being generous, that there is a place for, let's not say anti-rationalism, but an a-rational um, viewpoint or the, the subjective framework? Does that add to the conversation or does it only corrode the conversation? Well, it, it depends what we're we're talking about. There isn't anything wrong with talking about how we subjectively experience things. There's only a problem if we're 
saying that this constitutes a truth or that the way some people subjectively experience things is more important than the way other people do and that everybody needs to accept one person's experience as the truth. I mean, sometimes I think um, postmodernists and the, the, the kind of... Um, theorists that have evolved from it and aren't really postmodernists, but they've still got that that anti-objectivity stance that constructivist stance they will present a very sort of simplistic idea of what of what the rationalists what the objectivists are are doing in which they're saying we can only have facts we can only have um, evidence nothing else matters well no it does we're humans we're storytelling creatures we want to think about what is good and what is wise and we want to draw meaning from narratives and there are all these wonderful things that we do as humans that bring us great pleasure and great understanding they're not always evidence-based the problem is when they are conflated with evidence-based when we have different kinds of truths no we, we don't have different kinds of truths we have things that are true and we have things that are experiences perceptions opinions we we need to keep those those separate and, and of course I'm, I'm not saying here that we can ever be completely sure that we have obtained objective truth but that is always the aim getting closer to it it should always be the aim it seems like there is a like a bug in the works where the postmodernist uh, project goes off the rails uh, to a certain degree. And in charting it and in investigating its growth, do you have you recognized like the mistake that's made early on in one's transition from rationalism to anti-rationalism? And why is it so attractive to go down that path? Well, I think the thing is, with the first postmodernists in the late 60s, it wasn't really attractive to that many people. They were very, very niche. They suddenly popped up at the same time in these various sort of different um, disciplines of academia, and they pushed back against the Enlightenment ideal. They pushed back against Marxism, against Christianity, and against science, against all the things which, which claimed to know what was true. And they... They, they claimed that, that truth is not something to be found, it is something to be made, that it's always constructed. Now, because this was so aimless, really, because it just wanted to, to deconstruct things, it didn't really have anywhere to go and it, it kind of dismantled itself and then we had in the 80s and the late 80s and the early 90s we had um, feminists and critical race theorists and other people saying and queer theorists for example saying well okay this postmodernism thing is good cultural constructivism is a thing but unless we accept that there are certain people in certain places having certain experiences and this is real we can't do anything so we saw then a return to some form of object objectivity but that was when we're looking at society and how it's structured so it's objectively cr true that society is structured in terms of systems of privilege but that those privileges have been culturally constructed and still need to be deconstructed so it's it really is a very kind of second wave and this is why people so often say well postmodernism is dead nobody's doing it anymore and they're not Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard they, they wouldn't recognize what is happening now but those ideas have been taken from their sort of key tenets about objectivity about discourse about language mm -hmm. about structures in, Sorry, I, I go on. <laughs> no, I love that you go on. You, you're you're a wonderful goer honor. Um, 
One thing that Jordan Peterson brings up time and again is uh, this quizzical, uh, this problem that he has with why is Marxism enshrined in postmodernism? And I, I think that you're you're kind of pointing towards that. Like if postmodernism is to destroy every meta narrative, then why is it embraced mm. Marxism as the meta narrative? And there, there's a inherent contradiction in that. But you, what you're pointing to is that postmodernism needs some sort of narrative. Um, some sort of objectivity, which I think is more projectivity than anything else. We still have the Marxists. They have formed in academia a, a type of scholarship, a materialist approach. It claims to be empiricist, although it has a kind of conspiracy theory mentality in the way it reads things. And it is at odds with the postmodernists, who are the discourse and analysts, and they're looking at um, how things are constructed in language. And we see within feminism, within critical race theory, uh, within post-colonialism, the Marxist scholars and the postmodern scholars really at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we're, when we're looking at Marxism, I mean, Foucault, um, for example, he he reacted quite strongly against uh, Marxism. He was accused of, of being a conservative, as I expect you know, by Habermas. And then we have Derrida um, when he wrote his um, Spectres of Marx, in, in which he stated the one thing that is that is perfectly clear is that I am not a Marxist. And so we are looking at, with postmodernism, a reaction against Marxism. But it didn't turn away from socialism. So we still have the same drivers underneath. I, I like to think of Marxism and postmodernism as having a common ancestor, both philosophically and economically. Mm -hmm. But they've gone different directions. So I think it's profoundly unhelpful to confuse Marxism and postmodernism because what is the problem the, at the root of the problem with postmodernism is they don't think that there is a truth and if we start looking for postmodernists to say Marxist things that that's not going to happen they're not going to address econ the economy they're not going to care about the working class because too many of the working class are straight white men so we can see some similar attitudes and some similar attributes but but marxism and postmodernism really are very separate things okay why was the academy um susceptible to postmodernism well i think at this time at the, the late 60s because marxism had been a failure and there was a gap to be filled with the leftist academics in which they are still governed by these sort of left and liberal drives to to the care harm foundation to help the more the most vulnerable to achieve social justice so there was this move then after the wars after the fall of empire after the fall of jim crow when everybody is looking at how much social injustice there has been we've got the civil rights movements going on and by the time we're getting into the the end of the 70s the 80s legally most of the of the injustices have been repaired. It's no longer allowable to um, discriminate against people on the grounds of their race or sex. Um, gay men can now have sex legally. So a lot of these things had been had been repaired, and what was left was a lot of attitudes. So just because 
we had gender equality um, rules, laws enshrined and racial equality. It didn't mean that sexism and racism had gone away. Feminists and anti-racists and um, LGBT activists were still focused on addressing social attitudes. And this is where postmodernism, with its social constructivism in language, comes in very handily. So the postmodernism, it, it kind of rose up in the late 60s and then it burned itself out by the 80s but by this time the civil rights movements were seeing diminishing returns and the new social justice activism has tagged on to the end of the civil rights movements because we've got a zeitgeist in which we still really are newly aware of exploitation of oppression of empire of, of colonialism of sexism of of racism and we want to keep addressing these so that sort of culmination of the end of the civil rights movement, the evolution of postmodernism came together all at once to produce what we're seeing now as social justice, scholarship and activism. So one of my ideas in, uh, that came from my studying of the Evergreen situation was exactly what you say, is that the civil rights movement came and went, and then you have a bunch of basically boomers who are yearning for... Uh, that time of like drastic change and of great movements and being swept up and like really confronting these big problems but the big problems get smaller and smaller with time and so there's this mismatch between the desire for a grand change and the very nuanced tiny ways in which injustices still occur so for example, you have microaggressions still occurring, but when somebody goes to correct the microaggression, they bring the full brunt of the righteousness against a major aggression, right? So it seems like there's the energy is not suited to the correction. The correction is small little details when the energy and the mobilization, the activism wants the grand narrative. Yes, I I, th I think that's that's probably quite true, I and mean, I haven't haven't quite thought about it in those terms. But yeah, I mean there there what there is something um, to it that the the idea of microaggressions. We do commonly make assumptions that you're a man, you're likely to do this. You're a woman, you're whatever your identity is. There there are things we connect with it, and that can be very annoying for people who don't fit into this and and who who find themselves subject to these expectations. But the idea that's coming from the sort of dis discourse an analysis is, is this idea that we need to really dig into it, that we need to uncover it, that we need to admit it, that we need to dismantle it. And there just isn't any evidence that constantly pointing at things which could be racist, which could be sexist, is actually helping more than the liberal approach which was going which was working before, because we have, with mainstream liberalism, as Kimberly Crenshaw called it, or universal liberalism, we had this drive to remove social significance from identity categories. So you are still a man, but now you shouldn't be expected to um, to fight, to hunt, to do all these things associated with men. So to, to change expectations that people aren't constrained into them, remove barriers. Now, the social justice approach is very different. It's looking at, it starts with the assumption that in any interaction between two people of two different identities, there's going to be power um, imbalance and they try to read where it is and so then 
by they think by uncovering this we will become more aware of it we will be in a position to dismantle it but what seems to be happening and and what has been found with um anti-bias training and things is the more that we point out um race and gender the the more entrenched um antagonism seems to be and we've seen on the other hand attitudes are improving so quickly that the number of people for example who said they'd be happy to live next door to someone of a different race that suddenly just went up from something like 39 percent to 95 percent i think that was the uk was it and that was um and uh, within about 30 years so that really is incredibly rapid but if we're now going back again to judging people by their gender their race their sexuality uh, my fear and, and a fear of a lot of people who are, are looking into this is that it's going to it's going to cause the problem to reoccur we're going to see much more um, racism and sexism and and homophobia is going to appear much more natural again we had this nice sort of rule that we didn't do that and and now that seems to be becoming unsettled it seems so obvious to me that that would be the backlash and yet we have people who are very highly trained and at least uh bureaucratically very intelligent and intelligent insofar as they can get a phd going down this path and inciting racism and inciting uh i guess discrimination against all, all sorts of categories, but it's okay discrimination because we're only discriminating against the majority. We're only discriminating against the historically advantaged. Uh, mm. It just seems so obvious that that's such a bad uh, path to go down. And yet when you bring that up, like with you guys, what, you, what you've done and what you and James and, and Peter have been showing ha has received a, a drastic backlash from the people who are trying to do all this good work and why do you think they can't see that or am i wrong to to think that they should know better well um, uh, what what your what seems so natural to you and and i do believe it is obvious to most people because the way that we work generally is on a sense of fairness and reciprocity we want principles to apply to everyone but what is is coming up now really doesn't work that way and that is why it's so counterintuitive it's it's a completely different conception in which we are seeing people plotted by their identity into a position in society there are hierarchies and there are structures of power and privilege and so it makes no sense at all to say that everybody should be treated the same straight white men have been advantaged their knowledge is the one that forms society they need to sit down and shut up and let women and people of color and trans people and lgbt people generally to put forth their knowledge which will be different and um and to be heard so there's it makes no sense to say there there needs to be a fairness nobody should be discriminated against because of their identity because they're seeing things in a kind of reversal of this hierarchy and so i understand why they're they're justified in, in that and you you've been doing a lot of work to diagnose this problem and you're showing it uh the outcome of this in different disciplines and academia i've been showing this with what happened at evergreen trying to like connect the dots for people like this these were the ideas and these are the mm. actions and they're intimately linked it's it's mm. they're, they're a one-to-one -one ratio this is this is the outcome of thinking this way so 
beyond the mm. diagnosis, and we should talk more about the diagnosis and what it is and how it goes on, but have you started to grapple and what are your thoughts on, like, how do we reverse that or how do we, how do we uh, I guess, challenge that in a fruitful manner? Um, and is it possible or is society just, we're going to have to sweat this out? I, I think it's entirely possible because I I think, you know, a few minutes ago you said that isn't it obvious that we should all be treated the same? And I still truly believe that this is how the vast majority of people think. What is causing a problem with the left in addressing the problem on the left? We all, we all see the problem on the, on the right. If, if the far right is, is saying, well, these people should have rights and these people shouldn't, we should bet privilege these people over these people it's clear the problem we don't see it when it's on the far left and that's because it's happening in the name of social justice so there are all these very sort of well-meaning liberal lefties who don't want to seem to be against social justice who don't want to criticize anti-racist activism feminism lgbt activism so they're not addressing it out of a kind of misguided loyalty but there's also a failure to address it because it's just so counterintuitive and hard to understand so you know, to, to you to me to nearly everybody this seems hypocritical it seems inconsistent it seems like a like a big mess and you you i think that we people really need to understand the thinking that's that's behind it and when you can get into that mindset then you can compare epistemologies and, and you can say well no we, we don't want this one we don't think that's going to help there isn't evidence that it's going to help we want consistent principles applied to everyone that doesn't mean that we think there's a level playing field already but we think we could get there much better if we have consistent principles and i think people are ready to do that mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you're kind of at the forefront, and I see you, at least on Twitter, which is one of the uh, ways that I see you interacting with the world, um, attracting combativeness and then challenging people and being pretty consistent in in your narrative and and attracting mm. kind of uh, ruffled feathers and stuff. And how do you how's your kind of attitude towards the social justice contingent changed over time? Do, do you feel kind of in a pitted battle with them? Do you feel empathy towards them? And what are some of the strategies that you've seen have reduced the aggression uh, against this kind of conversation? Well, I think with a lot of the the social justice people, the identitarian left, if you're going to have find common ground with them at all, the way to achieve that is recognize that that is what they're running for. Because they seem... Um, racist and sexist but but in reverse to the way we've historically understood racism and sexism it is quite easy to accuse them of being ill-motivated but if you say to them well I understand that is also my aim wherever there is inequality wherever there is a lack of opportunity I also want this and we can occasionally um, find some common ground here but it's quite difficult because of this narrative that people like me um, typically socially economically left wing liberals are trying to maintain a status quo because it benefits me as a white woman and i either don't know that i'm complicit in structural racism or i 
don't care and I'm I'm trying to perpetuate it because it benefits me. So if somebody is talking to me with that in their mind, the chances of them finding any common ground with me or accepting that I actually share a considerable number of their aims is is very very small. Yeah. That is uh that seems to be like one of the features of this mentality. And I spoke with Brett Weinstein a year and a half ago about kind of around the grievance studies and how that kind of grew up. And he told kind of uh, evolutionary narrative about it, about there's all these different ways of acting that were selected over time that cause it to be such a strong ideology and reinforce that ideology. And a lot of the weird behaviors that I see uh, seem to be um, seem to be a part of this... Uh, this mind virus or this this ideology uh, that that just sweeps people up and and makes it rather cult like or rather uh, religious in a negative sense, mm. um, and so the whole process of uh, of somebody waking up from their wokeness or being deprogrammed it can't be done through uh, a face to face conversation. It has to happen from the inside out. This is this is what I've seen. People have to like be mm -hmm. thrown out of the cult or like just hit a brick wall with the the mentality. Um, but maybe maybe there are other ways of going about that. Um, or maybe the the job is to speak to people who are curious or who are sympathetic and just very patiently lay out like the end game and, and the narrative. Mm. I mean, I think when somebody really is deeply embedded in the ideology reaching them um through conversation is very very difficult but i also think that they're a much smaller um proportion of society than we perceive them to be i think it was was it eight percent of um people said that they um approved of, of political correctness identity politics approaches but what we have on top of that is the well-meaning um, liberals on the left and also to a certain extent on the right who are validating and supporting these ideas because they want to be in favour of social justice. I think if we can win the battle of ideas, if we can make it evident that social justice activism is, is no such thing, it, it's not at all likely to result in social justice and it, it's likely to do considerable harm, then, and it's ridiculous, and more and more people are saying this openly, mm. then we have a situation of social pressure. At the moment, to be a social justice activist is to be virtuous, is to get... I got, you get a lot of attacks, obviously, from, from um, people on the right and even people on the left, but you're really morally um, virtuous and at the top of the pile there. If we've got a situation where the majority of the left is saying, no, you are our extremists, you are irrational, you are counterproductive, we distance ourselves from you, then it's going to be far less attractive for young people to go into in the first place. And I think this is the way the battle of ideas are won, not in the short term, but in the long term. And I, I'm hopeful that we have done something towards that, because after our our probe came out there were some scholars on the left who they still hated us obviously but they were distancing their own work from the kind of work that we were 
we were mimicking, that we were mirroring. And they were defending the empirical nature of their work, the sort of uh, rigorous um, methods that they use. And that was brilliant. That was exactly what we wanted. If, if we can marginalise these postmodern ideas, these postmodern ethics, then that that the problem will take care of itself. That's brilliant. And it's kind of ironic that uh, like you said, it's the well-meaning liberals, um, give or take, uh, left-right spectrum, but it's the well-meaning people who are allowing the extremists to have to wield so much power and have such a strong mm -hmm. voice and, and to kind of dictate the conversation. Um, because I've seen that critique against the well-meaning liberal from the radicals. Like, they're always denigrating mm -hmm. the well-meaning liberal, and they trot out this quote, by Martin Luther King, where I think from uh, he wrote a letter from jail and, and he calls out the mm. white liberals who, who never stand up, uh, who mm. just passively allow uh, injustice to occur. Um, so it seems like it seems like the way that the radicals are going about uh, mobilizing or silencing the well-meaning liberal is going to be fundamentally different than the way in which you or somebody on the left would kind of try to get them to stand up and hold their ground and call out the radicals by not shaming them. Because the, what the mm. radicals have is the power of shame. They have these words that are quickly becoming meaningless, uh, bigotry, homophobia, racism, you know, they, they call you all these terms, and they call everybody mm. those terms that just doesn't agree with them. So if, if the alternative to that is that, no, you're well-meaning, and that's good, and we're not going to shame you, but you need to hold your ground and not be a coward, you know, I guess there's a way mm. of framing it that's more inspiring than uh, kind of shaming. Yeah, that I I did try in my piece. Um, no liberal lefties are not right wing. I I ended it with a request for for liberal lefties to defend um, liberal leftism because it's been the norm, the cultural norm for so long. We've sort of lost the ability to defend um, the need for evidence, the need for reason, the need for consistent principles, and people aren't doing this because they're just so confused about what is happening on the far left anyway, and they don't really often understand what it is they need to defend or how to do that without being called racist or sexist or homophobic. And um, James and I, we, we wrote our manifesto against the enemies of modernity, and that um, addressed both the far left and the far right, and, and pointed out that, well, argued that the majority of people are neither, and that we all in the, in the middle here, I mean, I'm not talking about political centrism, I'm, I'm talking about people who are not extremists. We generally like and want to maintain the benefits of um, secular liberal modernity. We like our institutions, we like our human rights, we like science, we like reason. And we're taking these for granted. We need to not do that. We need to learn how to look at extremist arguments from all sides and say, well, this is the problem with this. Here's the ethical problem with this. Here's the epistemological problem with this. So James and Peter and I, we are breaking things down time and time again. And we are saying, what's the epistemology going on here? What's the ethics going on here? Are these things that we want to maintain in society? And, and generally, I think at least 80% of people would say no. This isn't that's not what we want. We we want some consistency. We want some evidence based epistemology. We want rigor. So, um, yeah, that that is what we're we're hoping for anyway, to, to just really try and articulate what it is that we need to defend 
at the moment and it's not not being racist or not being sexist it's being consistent and it, and it's being reasonable hmm. do you think that that's an outcropping of us just becoming soft from the benefits of society the benefits of i guess modern society has allowed us to take advantage of these things and then some of us go a little crazy because we think that everything is constructed so we can just mix and match and it'll have the same result where other people say we don't have to defend anything like the status quo is a-okay we don't need to stand up for it it'll perpetuate beyond us yeah, I, I mean, I think that there is a, a strong hypothesis that one of the reason that we're we're seeing um, so much, as as you um, described earlier, overreaction to small um, events, is that we haven't, most of us in our lifetimes, had to deal with any large events. If we were at war then we might not care too much if somebody touched somebody else's hair or said they were articulate or asked them to make the tea. So, yes, that there is, I think, that where we are looking at what are the worst injustices in society and when there aren't that many of them, when we're not battling fascism or communism or any totalitarian regime, then we're, we're digging into things which, which, which are are really quite nebulous and um, interpretive. So, yeah, some, somebody said, I can't remember who it was, that the only thing that will save us now is if aliens attack. Then we will pull together yeah. and rediscover our common humanity. And um, But I, I think we can, we can manage that without that. <laughs> do, do you think, or are you optimistic about humanity's ability to work cooperatively without a common enemy? Do you think that there's such a thing as, like, a truly common common humanity identity politic or do we need from your point of view do do you think we're always going to need tribalism we're always going to need some sort of warfare whether it's petty warfare or internecine conflict i i think it'll take a long time for of um of peace and and harmony for evolution to change our brains out of the territorial tribal um, aspects that we've had so long that that predate our humanity. I, I don't know if that is ever possible, but what what has worked to sort of mitigate it as much as possible is is the, is the kind of structure that that came up in modernity that evolved that came through the Enlightenment and the civil rights movements, where we, it really is a social construct. We we started to disapprove of judging people by their identity and um, of giving some people more rights than other people. And this is really quite counterintuitive to us. We are tribal, we are territorial. If we get this norm and we find that it works, it benefits everyone, then we really need to hold on to it and keep reinforcing it because otherwise I, I think our nature is just far more inclined to retreat into groups and, and to prefer one's own um, group, I mean, ideological or uh, racial or gender, whatever, over other groups. And that's that's something that I don't think we will ever overcome before our extinction. We just have to get systems in place to, to, um, to, to mitigate it, to do the best we can with it. Have you been aware of your own leanings? And are there, is there like a continued sustained practice on your behalf of of resisting your own tribal nature or like at least uh 
being aware that you might have blind spots because you're inclined to favor those who favor you? I I do. Of course, I think we do all have biases. It's been noted before, and I I admit to it, that I have a certain sympathy with the socialists, the Marxists, the the materialists. I think that they are wrong um, in their analysis of society, but I... I share their aims. My leftism comes from the socialist left and I have over time accepted that a capitalist system actually does work better for everyone. And so I have to now hope for a kind of um, for for progressive taxes, for social programs, for this kind of social democracy, rather than socialism. So I have um, socialists who can tolerate me, who think I'm generally in the wrong right place, but but getting quite misguided. And I I think the same of them. So I do have a sympathy with them. We talk. We also share an antipathy to um, the postmodern left, which we feel has. Um, has really sort of shifted the focus away from the working class people and taken it into elite universities and um, become about all, everything else than other than hmm. economics and um, and class things. So I am aware of having that bias. Certainly, I'm also um, tend to have some prejudice against social conservatives and religious conservatives perhaps which which might not always be fair so i have to try and watch that but i think i think we all have these and i just uh, try to stay true to principles as far as i can yeah so the principle <laughs> do you think that there's certain principles that can override bias or at least uh, uh mitigate the negativity or the growing of bias like uh how do you keep an open mind towards a religious conservative well, I think that's the good thing of liberalism. I don't have to. I can disagree with a social conservative or religious conservative um, completely and have really strong arguments with them at the same time as defending their right to be socially conservative or religiously conservative and say so. I'm sure that you've received some criticism about people kind of construing your work um, uh, with grievance studies as being imminently weaponizable by the right. And Mm -hmm. what do you think about that? What do you think about, like, you developing tools that could end up actually damaging the project that you do believe in and stand for? I think this this is always a risk, but unfortunately, we cannot fix problems on our own side without acknowledging that they exist. And what I've said to people who've said this before... What gives you more confidence? If you think of a group that you really um, disagree with, that say say conservatives, if somebody, if a conservative is honestly owning the 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 extremists on their own side, if they are critical of um, Trump, for example, if they are acknowledging um, the rise of of um, white nationalism, and they are having a problem with it isn't that 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 could certainly give ammo to the left but in fact i think it gives more confidence that there is a a respectable a, a reasonable and ethical conservative position to have on things in the mm. same way um i've often thought with um, muslim reformers they're they're accused of feeding into anti-muslim bigotry but in fact i think knowing that there are 
um, Muslim liberals, Muslim reformers who are criticizing the extremists in their own group, who are acknowledging them and they're trying to do something about them, actually it makes much more positive view towards Muslims because we know that they vary greatly and that there are liberal Muslims out there. And I think this is the same with the left. I cannot, it's not as though if I don't um, point out postmodernism and um, and social justice activism and inconsistency that no one's going to notice. People have noticed. What it needs is for those of us on the left to address it honestly, to get more and more of us to address it, to say this doesn't represent all of us. We see the problem. We are working on it. Please come back and vote left. Interesting. So <laughs> in, a, in a certain respect, it almost requires faith that the people on the other side of the aisle are respectable and are honorable and will recognize uh, respectability and honor in somebody who's uh, their opponent or on the other side of the aisle. So you have well, to have I, faith I think... that you're going to be seen as a liberal at the end of when everything shakes out. You're still a liberal by people who are conservative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I think people who are dyed in the wool conservatives, they're, they're not going to vote left no, no matter what, you know, and, unless the, the right really goes um, too far away from their values. But what we have is, is a huge number of people in the middle. We know, for example, in the US, in the UK, that left leaning parties will be voted in one time and then right the next. That shows that there are always people going back and forth. From, for Trump, for example, I mean, he has garnered so much legitimate criticism. How much would it take for the left to increase its respectability, increase its credibility to reasonable people to ensure that he doesn't have a second term? I, I don't think it would take that much. And I think hmm. that this is really what the left needs to be doing. It needs to be reaching out to those waverers. There's no nothing to be gained from being a political purist and saying, well, you've you've voted for a racist, a sexist, whatever, you're you're dead to us. No, we need to bring people back. People haven't suddenly become sexist or racist. Hmm. The situation has has changed. The left has less, lost credibility and it needs to win it back. It's just very fascinating, or ironic, uh, take your pick, that the party of tolerance is the one that's ex uh, exuding the most intolerance at this point. Uh, the people who are so concerned with care are so careless with who they call bigots. Um, and do you think that that folds into the activism plus postmodernism uh, kind of mentality? Like, just how venomous the left has become, or at least the, the far left has become. Yes, I, I think it, we've, got, we've got heroes and villains and, and victims and oppressors now, and it, it's very difficult for somebody who is embedded in this mindset where they see this oppressive system and a certain group of people perpetuating the oppression to have any sympathy for those people at all. I mean, the idea that, that nearly all of us want to be good people, we want to make a fair society. We're not sitting there thinking, well, how can I oppress and exploit large sections of the population today? It doesn't seem to occur to them. It doesn't seem to occur to them that you want to argue with them, that you want to say this isn't fair and this is why it isn't fair. It's just, well, no, you are just obviously evil. And that's that's a difficult mindset to hmm. to, to do anything with. Hmm. 
and that, that's one of the things that's so toxic about it it's just how, how do you how do you detoxify that it just seems very immature it seems like somebody is stunted in their intellectual growth or has regressed in their intellectual growth to not be able to you know uh give the benefit of the doubt and operate in good faith to use the term that's quickly mm. becoming a dog whistle um mm. But as I said, I, I I don't think that those. I just think there are fewer who are really ideologically committed than we think there are. Okay. I, I think there are far more waverers, and we can we can win them back. With how to get through to and, and deprogram the um, the cultists, as as you accurately described them earlier. I I'm I don't know. Hmm. <sighs> Maybe maturity will do that. Some of them are very young. Some of them aren't, though. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so with Aereo um, as a platform, uh, this is kind of this is kind of a technical question or a geeky question because this is about publishing and stuff. What, what's your um, what what's your idea of where it's going to go and and what role do, do you want it to? to have in society it's it's kind of a sibling or a cousin of quillette and it's one of those outlets um like reason uh that's out there that's uh could possibly be uh, a crossroads for certain sorts of discourse that would be more beneficial rather to one party or another party but just to the discourse itself what, what's your conception that, of it? that's the aim yeah i mean aereo is um is essentially humanist and it is reason and evidence based so we have a few um uh sort of zero tolerance rules so we're not going for um partisan arguments or political speaking points um hyperbole we don't want um obscure theoretical or psychoanalytical or religious arguments we we want evidence and reason we want an attempt to be charitable to be balanced so people can be left-wing and we have some very left-wing um writers and or they can be right-wing and we have um a few of those and they can argue for those positions but they need to be essentially humanist which means they they need to care about um humanity generally so they they don't have to be atheists and many of them aren't but there's this idea that that area writers are broadly humanist broadly liberal in that not left-wing sense but in that sense of um seeking a fairness and freedom and equality generally so we've got yeah i mean um quillette it is it has been said is is the natural home of the intellectual dark web we are a bit more sort of we have a lot of the old new atheists and so we have these sort of objectivists this this evidence this reason this um humanism um sort of thing going on but but our, our writers are so diverse we, we've had um, a theologian write for us we, we've had um, so many conservatives even more um, socialists so we're um, anything that's a good argument that's um, reasoned well and which doesn't call everyone who disagrees with you evil is is something we want to put out there do you <laughs> think that arguments like that can be designed in such a way to make them more infectious than uh, the bickering uh, kind of uh, call-out culture kind of stuff? Or do you just have to take the high road and uh, lose a lot of audience in taking the high road? I, I think it's the latter, to be honest. I, I know from looking at publications, if 
and um, page views if we've got something which really appeals to one section of society either the right or the left um for example my um criticism of intersectional feminism that's the one loads and loads of page views then we have something which is is much more measured and it's um looking at um uh, a sort of a, a more sort of um like sort of just giving giving some credit to, to both sides or something and, and we we have way fewer so i could increase our reading by anything, particularly at one one side of the spectrum and that would that would certainly improve our page views but no. we're, we're not going to do that and i think there is there is a market for for people who are sick of that for people yeah. who want to see different arguments from from both sides but from reasonable and balanced people on both sides yeah we can fall into the trap of, of bemoaning the uh, whatever it is this media the guardian the huffington post and and now the new york times for publishing these very incendiary op-eds and and going after white people or men constantly um mm. and it's really easy to to bemoan the fact that that's what's driving views. Whether it's a hate view or it's a love view, it's still driving views, and it's degrading discourse over time. And so, in taking the high road, you have to kind of give up the populist, but have, but have more faith in the population, in a sense. Mm. That people will either get tired of this, or eventually get around to reading this kind of material. Mm. Yeah, and, and we build up quite um, quite a community of, of thoughtful okay. people who bring in other thoughtful people, and I, I think that's that's certainly worth doing. We're getting a bit heavy on academics at the moment, so I'm trying to get some more... Um, what do you want, porn stars? Uh, Non-academics. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they can certainly write for us, but uh, yeah, I'm, I want us not to become too dense and um, mm, mm. philosophical and... Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> What's the status with uh, the gender, uh, well, not the gender, it's more than just gender studies, but the Grievance Studies Project um, that you guys uh, did? Are you guys just watching well, it fall out? Yeah, we're, we're still um, obviously following um, developments. We we have Mike Nayner, who is um, making the film. Uh, we'll all continue to read, write, make arguments about... Um, what is happening in academia we're um we, we sort of have various plans in mind to to sort of dig into things a bit more and where where we're going to to go now but i, I have my book obviously in which i want to just really set everything out for anybody who can cope with reading ninety thousand words on um <laughs> on this kind of scholarship and uh yeah do you think it was we a success see where we can go um yeah it would have been better if we'd have been allowed to finish to be honest but um we we knew that would that would probably happen once there was suspicion and we were being asked questions we'd said we would come clean we wouldn't lie um to people or or um refuse to come clean when we were being asked so we we had to do that with seven papers still in play but it was a bit of a blow because we'd kind of mastered the masculinities and the gender aspect and we'd got some critical race theory in there but we were just perfecting and getting good at, at, um, at some other things which were progressing positively some of the, the queer theory and some of the psychoanalytic stuff and yeah that that could have worked so it it would have been nice to have had 
a bit longer to to finish off but yeah. i think generally it it showed what we wanted to show but in another way what we didn't really think of is because it's so complicated and people just really aren't going to take the time to read not only our you know 10,000 word explanation of what we did but all our papers and follow um all the um the references and and look at all the reviewer comments and you'd really need to do that to understand what it was we what the the whole body of scholarship that we drew from and how we were directed to go it would take you know a committed person three months or something to to get a good idea of that and that's not going to happen so we're you know a bit frustrated with people who have read a few news articles about it and they're sure they knew what we did and what it meant and they really don't Hmm. (laughs) In, in a certain respect these studies that you guys critiqued from the inside out are so obscure mm. uh, because they're so obscure and so dense and so complex and so specialized that in a way is what allowed them to grow so big or to, mm. to go as far as they have gone and to fly under the radar because uh, they're, they're all in these little coteries of people publishing themselves and, and adulating themselves and never having to be exposed to data, mm. to the outside world or to, basically to any sort of scrutiny maybe i'm overstating Mm. the case but no it is a self-reinforcing self-feeding um system jim and i have just finished um writing something we're going to publish soon which is is looking at how these common themes are all sort of building on each other when you've got you've got robin d'angelo with her white fragility and and to support that then you you need jose medina and his um epistemic um ignorance and um, then we we have um alison bailey and her privilege preserving epistemic pushback we have white ignorance we have white talk we have all all of these ideas that are, are coming up and they're mutually reinforcing each other and nothing is really coming in to say well what is it at the base of this is this what is this rooted in and, and is it the right way to look at things because it's all based on this assumption of a standpoint epistemology by identity and it's um yeah it's it's authorizing legitimizing each other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> And so do you do you see going forward that um, people will be hold, held accountable intellectually to like actually base their ideas and their theories on reality? Or do you think they'll just be able they've they've mastered the art and they've mastered the bureaucracy to just perpetuate until I, I, colleges close because the bubble is uh, burst? I think that the people who are already doing this will continue to do this but i still think the majority of people won't do this and all we can do really is is try to get fewer and fewer people holding this kind of scholarship in high regard and being willing to study it mm. there's also the reality that few people are going to want to employ someone whose degree is is in something like this it's it really can only um only be useful for being a diversity officer or for teaching it itself and unfortunately that role is is growing at the moment but um i i i think it will burn itself out i think it will fall out of favor but i i don't know how long that will take and how much damage it will do in the meantime yeah yeah uh the what happened at evergreen state college is i haven't done this yet um but I can pretty much guarantee that Robin D'Angelo and her ideas um, 
were very, very instrumental. Like if that book, White Fragility, mm. had been on the press by the time it happened, that would have been the little red book of the uprising. Mm. Um, and and hopefully at some point, either myself or somebody else can go through and show the direct correlation between her ideas and what happened at Evergreen. Uh, because I, I'm really I'm really scared that her ideas will be enshrined by you know starbucks and like all these big corporations and then kind mm. of like start being taught at high schools and stuff like that and i think her ideas are some of the worst i've seen uh to mm. pop up in this century um i mean well th this is the thing that jim and i've just finished writing in order to support um uh, a short documentary made by mike so oh, th this is what we're trying to do is, is show the connection between these ideas this mind virus as you said and and the actions um i can certainly if if you want to just completely despair of, of humanity though i um i recommend reading barbara applebaum's um being white um being good white complicity and pedagogy or something but uh yeah I, i've read that one that one infected my mind i, I read her and, and jose medina in one day both of their books and it played with my mind i found myself watching a video and it was um it was just a, a film in, in which um a girl graduated a scene um, a mixed race girl graduated and she was celebrating with her parents and she hugged her white mother and i just finished reading these books and i thought oh look she loves her mother even though her mother's white i thought what are you thinking and it kind of gets into your brain and you stop seeing well, here's a girl and here's her mother and her father it's here's a mixed race person a white person a black person what power dynamics are going on here it's it's horrible it's anti-humanist and it's it's mm. very difficult to to avoid it if if you're entrenched in that and i you know i'm i'm one of the most sort of universally liberal skeptical people you can find and it, it really did um mess with my mind for for quite some time, yeah. I had to read Stephen Kerr to, to straighten my, to, to wash my brain out. He's very good for that. And he needs to write more. <laughs> uh huh? No, I, I noticed that too. The, I mean, I'm still very much affected by my evergreen education and it's not so bad. It's just what I'm always critiquing TV and I'm always seeing the power dynamics and I'm always seeing representation. And it's not yeah. that I'm just seeing representation. I'm always skeptical of why that representation's there. You know, like mm. I can never just consume the media, which is, I guess, a good thing. You know, like you, your eyes are open and they're never closed, but I, I've had to do some, some, uh, active work to, to not be projecting that all the time and not being like apologetic all the time about uh, mm. my status as a, as a, with the chromosome and the phenotype that I have. Well, excellent, Helen. Thanks so much for finally getting on my channel. It's not you. It's it's our schedules, but um, we did it finally. We can celebrate. Yes, finally. Have a good night. Oh, oh. Did I? Are you broke? Okay. You're breaking up. I was just saying good night. Okay. Uh, good night. <laughs> good night, Helen. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.